J.C. Ryle was a man who lived from 1816 to 1900. And in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, uh, he takes several chapters to exhort young men, warn them of different dangers that are especially paramount in youth, and to exhort them uh, to think about certain matters that when we are young, as early as we can in our lives, we should be meditating on. And uh, I love the wisdom in this book. Here's a quote. Ryle says, how common is it to see young men heady, high-minded, impatient of counsel? How often they will not stop to listen to a hint from an older person. They think they know everything. They are full of conceit of their own wisdom. Ryle's warning there, his observation in his day, and would be echoed by uh, many Uh, parents and authorities today, is to see the danger of the self-conceit and high-mindedness that's part of the so-called invincibility mindset that youth may have, and an uncorrectable spirit where I know what I'm doing, just leave me alone, don't bother me with reproof or correction. What Proverbs does tonight in chapter 15 is it helps support biblically why the warning from Ryle is always relevant. And why even when someone might not consider themselves in the youthful season of life any longer, why the temptation towards self-conceit and prideful obstinance before the Word of God might continue to be something we need to be warned about. In Proverbs 15, like all of Proverbs, the general aim is toward those who have many years before them so that they can grow wise. He's speaking in chapters 1 to 9 as father to a son. And yet we are all addressed by Solomon, no matter our stage in life, to consider the wisdom here. And in verses 5 to 12, we're going to hear some language about reproof and the different responses to it and what that means and the effects that that will have. Notice the bounding of the unit in verse 5 and in verse 12. In verse 5, there's language about at the end of verse 5, whoever heeds reproof is prudent. And in verse 12, the scoffer doesn't like to be reproved. This unit is surrounded by, bounded by, language about reproof. Namely, in verse 5, the one who heeds it. And in verse 12, the one who won't. So the one who heeds it, that person is prudent. The one who rejects reproof, well, other things about their character could be affirmed. And uh, so let's consider tonight uh, this notion of reproof. It has to do with correction. If someone reproves another, or if you have received reproof, someone has come along with some kind of instruction that that is to correct. And it tells us in verse 5, basically in this concept of parenting, that fathers and mothers would have to do this all the time. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. You have here two different responses to reproof. And parents know this. Their children do not grow up always knowing the right thing to do. Um, They don't have to be taught to sin even. The selfishness that's ingrained at the very young age manifests itself early on. A fool despises his father's instruction. But whoever heeds reproof, and I take that to mean instruction like from the Father or some other authority that needs to be wisely instructing and guiding, there are different responses, right? There's despising and heeding. Now, to heed means to receive with a certain heart posture. 
To heed instruction means I'm going to receive this to submit. I'm going to heed that instruction. So there's that. There's an option of submission from the heart to this. And that would be in line with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. It's a posture of the heart. It's it's to treat with a kind of dignity and honor that will lead to obedience and heart submission. Not just sort of outwardly conforming to rules and inwardly just eye-rolling over and over and over again, but rather honoring your father and your mother. To heed reproof, not just outwardly, because to despise, that's an inward thing, isn't it? So the problem in verse 5 with the fool is in his heart he doesn't love what he should love. He despises what he ought to receive. And namely, this is his father's instruction. Now, what kind of instruction do we have in view? Well, it's first of all assuming that this particular figure is caring about the direction of this one younger than him. And so it's providing instruction. In the context of Proverbs, instruction or understanding or reproof is anchored in chapters 1 to 31, surrounded by the fear of the Lord. This is a godly instruction. Somebody might say, well, you know, when I was growing up, my mother or my father, they did not give wise instruction. Okay, fair enough. That's certainly the case in a fallen world. We recognize Genesis 3 parenting might involve people growing up under unwise instruction. Terrible examples and reproof that would not be correction toward godly living. This is instruction, however, that's very carefully contextualized because it's in Proverbs as a book. So what kind of instruction is this? This is instruction about the way of life. This is instruction about what it means to fear the Lord and to know God. What's the fool's response to that? The fool doesn't want anything to do with it. The fool doesn't want to hear it. The fool doesn't want to receive it. The fool is face to face with godly instruction and their heart is in rebellion against it. One writer says, attitude toward a parent's teaching will determine one's lifelong attitude toward authority and instruction. Now, I even wonder about the overstatement possible with language like will determine But just to back up to consider the sense of this warning from this commentator on Proverbs, attitude toward parental teaching, how that might be connected with one's attitude toward authorities outside the home. Meaning that the home becomes a kind of important training ground for people to begin to learn how to think about others how to live in community. Even in a small household, one is thinking about how can I share and how can I think of someone else's interests. And the reason that this writer, this commentator is making the connection here is if someone lives for their own pleasure and, and, uh, and self in the home, why would we expect that the switch will just flip When they leave the home and are in broader society, instead, we might actually find to be the case, what this commentator has observed, that there's a connection between a heart toward wisdom in the home, either despising it or receiving it, and how one might live later on. We could even see the societal implications of this. It's indeed observable and statistically clear that when people come from very difficult and broken upbringings, 
their home not being an example of godly living and instruction. It can set them up for more challenging circumstances and hardships in society at large because of the lack of something here in verse 5. The father's instruction. And think about people who would grow up wishing they had a mother and father to instruct them. Someone who wishes that the example that they had and the teaching that they did receive would have pointed them toward wisdom. Because for many years, perhaps, it had not been the case. And the toll that it took was real. And this warning here is that a fool despises his father's instruction. And so, you know, we have, we have some children here in the room tonight who live at home. And, uh, and hi, a couple of you waved. <laughs> you should think carefully about verse 5's warning here. Because you're under the care of people in a household... And you think, well, you know, I know my mom isn't perfect. I know my dad isn't perfect. Yeah, verse 5 is not addressing that. What verse 5 is addressing is that there is godly instruction in the home in which you live. And I see you children out here, and I know the parents and household that you live in. And you need to heed the warning here in verse 5. Because if you don't take seriously the godly instruction that the people who care for your life are giving you, then you're responding like a fool. Proverbs is warning you here. It would, rather want, it would rather you heed reproof, which means to have a heart that receives your parents' instruction and not a heart that thinks you know everything already. Because you don't. And even if your parents struggled with that kind of conflict, when they were children, they came to see in their own growth and experience, yeah, indeed, I didn't know everything I thought I knew when I was young. And instead, you grow into the truth of the Scriptures and pursue wisdom, and whoever heeds reproof is prudent, which means here's what's good for you, and especially the youth in the room tonight. What's good for you is to receive into your heart the godly instruction and wisdom given to you. Sometimes it sounds like correction, because it turns out, That as we are young and as we are trying to find our way and being morally formed and pursuing virtue and avoiding folly, part of what it will involve along the way are people saying reproving words. And it will sound like correction. And we might not like it. But whoever heeds reproof, whoever will nevertheless receive that, is prudent. Which means they are becoming and even living out a kind of wisdom and discretion they are growing in discernment in other words wisdom is a community project it requires relationships and dynamics and especially in the household when you have believing family members who are able to influence you in wisdom so this sets up the the passage and then in verse 12 we see how it returns to the theme of reproof Now, in the house of the righteous, not only is there godly instruction in verse 5, there is faithful work, there's integrity behind tasks, and one of the things that this will result in, in pursuing faithful work and integrity and and, uh, avoiding laziness and folly, it will result in being able to provide. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. Now, there's not a dollar amount attached here for good reason. It's simply saying, with this verse, what we are warned about earlier in Proverbs, and certainly later than chapter 15, the notion is also taught, that fools will reject the notion of working faithfully and working with integrity and honesty, and they will seek shortcuts, and in their greed and envy, they might try to accrue something that ends up short-circuiting their life. 
But they should trust the Lord instead. They should pursue faithful work instead. They should work with integrity and honesty. And they should trust that the Lord will provide for the house of the righteous. Not only then in verse 5 does the house of the righteous include godly instruction, but the blessing of God is on the house of the righteous in verse 6. It's not so with the wicked. In principle, here's what we see at the end of verse 6. Trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The wicked are characterized by this term, the wicked, because of the way they deal. Not just their manner of of living toward God, but toward neighbor. We recognize the wicked may have a, a kind of ethic of work that's actually void of sound ethics altogether. And that the way they interact with their neighbor and the opportunities they seize are trying to leverage themselves over at the disadvantage of others to exploit the vulnerable and on and on. They should not expect the blessing and strength and vindication of the Lord. They should instead expect that what they will reap is trouble because what they have sown is unrighteousness. There is an incentive here then, isn't there? What is Proverbs trying to woo us to consider? Proverbs not only is is giving us important commands and warnings, it's telling us down the road, what is it that you want? Do you want to live as a fool? Then despise your parents' instruction because folly will be your lot. Do you want to grow in prudence and discernment and wisdom? Then heed your father's instruction, your mother's reproof. In verse 6, Do you long for the blessing of the Lord and to live faithfully before God that you would flourish in a life in communion with God? Then work in such a way and live in such a way that's not going to be in rebellion against God, but trusting the Lord with all of your income and all of your economic status. Not, therefore, being like the wicked, which would count on trouble instead. In verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools, I think this is connected to verse 6. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And where there is something that is accrued, there is much to spread. And one of the the play on uh, notions that you could notice from verses 6 and 7 is that treasure in the house of the righteous isn't always a material thing. It's peace and joy, spiritual vitality and love for others and for God most of all. Isn't that indeed a treasure to be cherished and stewarded? And where there is treasure in the house of the righteous, we learn in verse 7 that the lips of the wise have something to give. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. Not so the hearts of fools. Not only does the, uh, the, the wicked expect trouble for their income to befall them, but they certainly don't have in their hearts what would be a blessing to others. Oh, that we would trust the Lord and not be like the way of fools that lacks in the heart wisdom to give. In other words, the lips and the heart are connected, not on an anatomical chart, but on a spiritual one. Indeed, the lips are connected to the heart. Why is it that the lips of the wise have something to spread? Because they've stored it. They have the treasure of the knowledge of God in their heart because they know the word of God. They want to grow in wisdom. This means they've got something wise to share. They can spread it like sowing seed. Not so the hearts of fools. The fools lack this in the heart. And so from their lips, what would you expect? Knowledge? No. 
The hearts of the fool lacks wisdom, and therefore folly would come from their lips. In verses 8 and 9, the responses of God to the wicked and the upright work like this. Because let's say this house, which tries to store up something, which seeks to have instruction. Well, this is, this is to take into account that there is spiritual business at hand. The houses of the Israelites would know about verses 8 and 9. The idea of bringing sacrifice and making prayer. You don't always know what goes on in the inner sanctum of a household. And even when we meet people, you don't know what's going on in their very heart like God alone does. Verses 8 and 9 are demonstrating that God knows what's in the heart and acts accordingly. So in verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he, the Lord, loves him who pursues righteousness. Once again, we're dealing with this binary, right? We have wise and fool. We have righteous and wicked. And here, the wicked sacrifice. You might say, well, the wicked, uh, they go through religious motions. Um, You know, maybe they own a Bible. Maybe they attend a church. Their heart is not for God, but, you know, they, the Lord said bring these sacrifices, and so they bring these sacrifices. Proverbs 15.8 reveals here, What's taught elsewhere in the Old Testament, what's confirmed in the New Testament, merely going through an outward motion of bringing a sacrifice to keep the ritual, to check that box, which is void of a heart that loves and knows God, that does not fool the Lord. It is the height of hypocrisy, and Jesus actually actually accuses the Pharisees of this, doesn't he? He strongly speaks to them in Matthew 15, in parallel passages, drawing from the book of Isaiah, where he warns them about people who claim to know God, but their hearts are far from God. Their worship is in vain. That's what this is. This is the sacrifice of the wicked. It is displeasing to the Lord. I bring up Cain and Abel a lot. At least I feel like I do. (laughs) Because I feel like they're so representative spiritually of things outwardly versus inwardly. When I read verses 8 and 9 about the sacrifice of the wicked and the prayer of the upright, my mind thinks again and again of Genesis 4. Here is someone who's bringing an offering to the Lord, and yet Cain is wicked, and it's demonstrated in the very chapter that he is. The sacrifice of the wicked, does that please the Lord in verse 8? No, it's an abomination to the Lord. He's not exalted by the sacrifice of the wicked, because the wicked don't love God. They don't treasure Christ. They don't delight in His Word. They want to be God. And so in their foolishness, they go through these religious motions. And does that please the Lord? No, he's not fooled at all. Though perhaps outwardly many would be. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. That's such a strong word. An abomination to the Lord means it is repulsive to the Lord. It is something he strongly rejects and loathes. An abomination. The prayer of the upright is contrasted. The prayer of the upright is acceptable to God. Now, what's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? Is it because the righteous and the wicked, they compare one another, and the wicked just have fewer good works, and the righteous just have more? The righteous and the wicked, they are distinguished by how their heart receives the Lord. That in the fear of the Lord and reverence of God, the righteous person is the one who worships God. This is not a contrast between the sinful and the sinless. Even though the word upright might be a strange word to give to people who are believers. You think, well, you know, I know I fall short. I know I have ongoing sin in my life. I know if the Spirit searches me in the mirror of the word, 
I constantly need the daily grace of the Lord. Well, yes and amen. The upright person here is not righteous perfectly morally. That's not what the word upright means. The prayer of the upright is the prayer of the one who knows God. And their prayer is acceptable to God because God is their refuge. God gladly hears their prayer. It is pleasing to him. This is sacrificial language. So sacrifice, verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked. And then the prayer, it's treated like a sacrifice. That sacrifice is acceptable. We thought about this this morning in Psalm 19, right? The idea of the ritual sacrifices, you could bring something to the Lord and it was counted acceptable or unacceptable by the priest if it met the criteria. Spiritually, the prayer of the upright is a kind of offering. Every time we, we pray to the Lord, we are offering our words. The Lord receives the prayers of his people. They are acceptable to him because we are those upright in Christ Jesus in union with him. In verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Verse 9 explains verse 8. If somebody, now I've already elaborated on it, but if someone looked at verse 8 and said, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination, you say, well, wait a second, they're sacrificing. Didn't the Lord tell them to sacrifice? Isn't like much of Leviticus devoted to the sacrifices they should bring? Why isn't the Lord accepting this? What's well, because of verse 9? So the rejection of the sacrifice has to do with that they had first rejected the Lord. Why does the Lord reject their sacrifice? Because they reject Yahweh. In other words, they reject the Lord and they sow God's rejection of them as a reaping. This, let me put it this way. The sowing is their rejection of the Lord and God's rejection of them is what they reap. The way of the wicked is an abomination to them. The way is a reference to the direction they walk. So it's their direction in life. It's the choices they make. It's the character they're forming. It's the goals that they have. The ambition that drives them. It's their way. It's their, their path. It says the Lord looks upon the direction or the way of the wicked. It is abominable to the Lord. But what about the one who has a different way? The alternative is at the end of verse 9, someone whose way is one of pursuing righteousness. What does the Lord think about that? Well, that's not an abomination to him. Because the one who pursues righteousness is the one who worships God, whose refuge is God, who seeks to fear the Lord and bring glory to God. That's a pursuit of doing what is right before God. The Lord loves his people. There's no language of abomination there, no language of condemnation there. We are not condemned in Christ. We are loved everlastingly in the beloved Son of God. We are so secure in His steadfast love. There's nothing you could do to make God not love you. The security of the love of God we have in Christ Jesus is staggering to the mind. And in verse 9, we see the explanation of the terrible observation of verse 8. That the sacrifice of the wicked is abominable because of their way. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable. Why? Because of what their heart desires, which is God. The way of righteousness, pursuing righteousness, is done intentionally. If you pursue something, that's not accidental. It's not like you just happen to come upon righteousness. No, what the righteous are doing is that they are giving thought to their steps. They're looking at the decisions in front of them. They're trying to think wisely about what's going to be good for their lives and what's going to be honoring to God. They want to factor all of that in to walk prudently. And the fool doesn't think about those things. 
The fool just has these impulses and desires, maybe even acts of the flesh, we could call them from Galatians 5, using that label. They just want to do what they want. They're not thinking about long-term consequences. And even if it does occur to them, they think to themselves, it will probably be fine. It will probably work out. Or whatever happens, you know, I can, I can deal with it. You should consider then the warning in verses 10 and 11 about this. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. If the wicked think to themselves, I think in the end this is all going to be fine then they show they don't believe the Bible. Because the Bible says otherwise. The way of the wicked is an abomination. And what is the result? What are they reaping? They reap death. This is Paul's interpretation in Romans 3 of our dilemma, right? Uh, Or in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. Think of Genesis chapter 2. Adam is warned after seeing all the trees of the garden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way, verse 10 tells us. What would that discipline ultimately look like? Why is it so severe? Because of death. And I don't think this can mean just physical death. Because even the righteous die. We have memorial services and funerals to Remember the lives of God's people when they die. I mean, we're not talking here about people who, well, if I would just heed reproof and if I would just keep my you know, feet on the right way, no death for me. No, I don't think physical death is the ultimate point here. The severe discipline for those who forsake the way, which would be the way of righteousness, they will reap death. One commentator says this discipline is bitter, difficult, severe, and heavy. It's received that way. They don't, they're not warned by the love of God. They don't see the wisdom of God as trustworthy, sure, and good. They don't see His commandments as lovely and guiding them in goodness and wisdom. They look at those things as burdens, and what they will reap is death because they've committed their heart to rebel against the Lord. The term way is connecting these verses, isn't it? In verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination. Well, what's at the end of that way? Like if you looked all the way down, what's at the very end? And the language here is death. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us of a second death, a condemnation at the day of judgment. That's what I think Proverbs 15.10 is aiming at. But just like Eve heard in the garden, I think the tempter comes to us. And when we are tempted with rebellious things and sinful things... I think the tempter will say to us, you shall not surely die. It's the same lie. Has God really said, and we just need to look in Proverbs 15, 10 and see, he has really said. Like his word is true. What Proverbs 19 teaches us about the word of God bears to uh, these verses as well in Proverbs 15. That the word of God teaches us sin is destructive. Horrible for our souls and our eternal selves. Whoever hates reproof. This requires us to say, what is my heart response to godly biblical instruction, direction, correction? Do I welcome it? And one of the reasons we would welcome it isn't because it always feels good. And it isn't because we always like it. 
Now, we might just rebuff initially and think, man, this is embarrassing, or I'm frustrated by this, or I'm ashamed of this, or I wish I wouldn't have gone about it this way. I wish I could have figured this out on my own. There's all sorts of pride manifestations that are caught up in all of this, right? But in the end, the one who knows God wants to walk wisely with God, and they know that even the strong corrections of the Word of God are good for them. Because what God is doing is sparing us from folly. There's a way that leads to life. And there is a way that leads to death. (sighs) Think of going on a trip with someone and you're behind the wheel. And you're driving and you're supposed to go a particular way. And you pass it. And your passenger says, about a hundred feet back, you were supposed to make a left. Now if you were to say, well, I don't want to hear that. That's not what I want to do. I don't want that kind. And you say, I'm going to keep going this way. I mean, you, you could. You could just keep going that way. But the way you needed to go, and this word of, of redirection and correction that's come, you might be frustrated and think, all right, well, I've got to turn around here, and I've got this. But, but don't you see that if you will nevertheless turn, you'll be heading down the path you need to go? No matter how frustrating it might seem at the time, no matter how awkward, no matter what the sacrifice, no matter if you think, but there's a wreck on the other side, we're going to be in traffic for hours. But in the end, aren't you going to be going the right way? So it's about the big picture, isn't it? It's about the big picture. The one who hates reproof is going to die. So you don't want that, right? And so no matter the cost, you know, Jesus says, listen, here's the way to life. If any man wants to follow me, he's going to take up his cross and follow me. But it is the way to life. It's just that the Christian life is shaped like a cross. And in verse 11, he pictures death... As Sheol and Abaddon. Abaddon. This is not a word used a lot in the Old Testament. It's a word that translates to mean destruction. So Sheol and destruction or Abaddon. They're being used here as like the place of judgment for the wicked. So here's the connection among these verses. You know, The way of the wicked is abomination to the Lord in verse 9. What's the end of that way? Death. Well, what kind of death are we ultimately looking at? Well, the worst kind. Spiritual death. Mm. In verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. And how much more the hearts of the children of man. I think this is picturing here what in the ancient world were viewed to be remote places of holding for the wicked. In the Old Testament, you didn't want to go to Sheol. Especially as it was understood to have the compartment of the place of the unrighteous. What we would think of now as Hades in the New Testament or hell. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. While someone else might not be able to see, if you will, to those remote and distant places as it was thought of in the imagination. Those things are clearly known and laid out before the Lord. And if mankind cannot see what only God can see because of his omniscience. Well, then our hearts, with the nearness of God and the presence of God in the world, our hearts are absolutely known to him then. If God knows what seems to be the farthest and most remote realities, the places of holding for judgment, then our hearts are definitely not hidden from him. Because he sees what no one else can peer into. And the argument is actually a lesser to greater argument, isn't it? That if Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, known by Him and nothing hidden from Him, then how much more the hearts of the children of man. And this means the wicked should tremble before God who knows their every motive, their every abominable 
pursuit. And as they seek in their rebellion against God to live out rebellion against God, they should tremble before the Lord, before whom Sheol and Abaddon lay open. How much more their very hearts are open before God. Nothing is removed from his presence. This is to help us see with further incentive, shouldn't we seek to walk before the Lord, before whom our hearts lie open? That if Sheol and Abaddon are open before the Lord, well, my heart has nothing hidden from him. And that means I need to come to God as my refuge. I need to fear the Lord as what my heart needs to love because I've been made for his glory. And so seeing the connections and themes interweaving these these verses, this little unit of, of verses, we end in verse 12 by returning to the notion of reproof. In verse 5, Whoever heeds reproof is prudent. That's talking about someone who responds well to to reproof. But the scoffer is not like that in verse 12. The scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. One of the things I think we should think through as maturing believers in the word of God is, we can't live our lives only doing what we like to do, And only avoiding what we want to avoid. Our desires and our wants and our likes need higher transcending authority and guidance that is more compelling. Because what's the problem with the scoffer? He doesn't like what anyone's telling him. The reason he doesn't want to hear reproof is because he doesn't like it. He wants to do what he wants. He thinks pleasure is his God. He thinks that his stomach and his mind and his desires will be met in the temporal, sinful things of the world that do not honor God. So a scoffer doesn't like to be reproved. I think the wise should look at this and say, well, it doesn't really matter if we like to be reproved though, right? Like it should be, should be the, whether the case is, if my heart needs biblical correction and direction toward Better thinking and acting on the path of life. Like that's what matters more. Not whether I I like that or not. The scoffer, they don't think beyond what they like to do and what they don't like to do. It's it's just limited to that. So the scoffer, that's a strong term too. That's a different term than just the fool. This is a fool whose heart is so hardened that he thinks the idea of righteousness is ridiculous. He thinks the idea of fearing God is absolutely absurd. He's a scoffer. So there's a posture of heart toward the things of Christ and the gospel where he sees those things as utterly foolish. So he scoffs at them. Reminds us of Psalm 1, where it tells us that the man who is blessed does not sit in the seat of the scoffers, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. This scoffer doesn't want to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Which means, you know, if he wants to do something, he's not going to consult people who are going to try to talk him out of it. He's not going to go to the people who aren't going to tell him what he wants to hear. Because he doesn't like reproof. He thinks, well, if I go and this person, if I have to talk with him about this thing, you know, they're going to tell me what I don't want to hear. And I don't, I don't want reproof. And a scoffer thinks those things, doesn't he? He will not go to the wise because he doesn't love wisdom and he won't heed reproof. So one truth I think about a maturing disciple of Jesus is that they want to pursue righteousness and they want to not fear reproof. Friends, I think we should pray this way. 
I think we should pray, Lord, help me be a believer in Christ Jesus, unafraid of reproof. That if the correction will come, if the instruction from your word will come through your word by your spirit in my devotional time, through a trusted brother and sister in Christ who sees my erring way and wants to pull me aside and say, dear beloved one, let me speak words into your life. Lord, help me not fear reproof. I don't want to fear man. I want to walk humbly before you. I mean, we should pray this way. Proverbs 15 and in verse 12 should frighten us because the scoffer doesn't like reproof. So Lord, help us not to take the seat of the scoffer. Help us to receive biblical wisdom that as we are maturing in Christ Jesus, we will not fear correction because we want to be wise. We want to walk a path of wisdom. We want life everlasting. We don't want destruction. We don't want our hearts, having already been known by God, to be that cast into Abaddon or Sheol. Instead, we want to pursue righteousness. And that means growing in wisdom as a community project. Friends, this is what makes the local church so important. It's not just you, an individual, with Jesus. We're a body of Christ. We are growing together, knit together, bound together by the very powerful working of the Spirit at our conversion. We are part of the body of Christ. And a glory and a wonder of being a part of the body of Christ is that we will have our lives intermingled and intertwined together that we might walk wisely together, helping and pursuing and walking on this path as one. A scoffer doesn't want to be reproved. But the believer, as we want to pursue the Lord in His righteousness and more faithfully walk with Him, we want to receive reproof. Just like that person who misses their turn. And the one next to them says, that term is about 100 feet back. We're going to be able to receive that instruction so that we can reverse course and continue going the way we need to go. Can you imagine the scoffing driver saying, don't tell me to turn around, I'm going to keep going this way. I mean, if you're going to double down on foolishness, I guess you could say that. Then you're just going to continue going in the direction though that you don't actually want to go. Oh, let's pray then that the Lord will keep us humble by His Word to walk in openness with one another and that we will grow in wisdom as one body in Christ. Here, lastly, the words of Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding." alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, but that is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him, And we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And he goes to explain what they were taught. To put off the old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. Putting off that old self. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new man. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. An application that we want to bring to our Christian lives in light of Proverbs 15 is to use language like Ephesians 4. What is Proverbs 15 wanting us to do? To put off the old man and on the new. 
To be renewed in the thinking of our minds and not like in the darkened ways before we knew God. We've been taught Christ, truth in Christ, a way of righteousness in Christ. So therefore, let us walk wisely before him, receive reproof and correction by his word and through others as they know Christ and want us to walk together with him. Because in the end, this is the path of life. Let's pray.